Καλησπέρα σας και καλώς ήρθατε στο MPA Planet Money. NPR. <laughs> Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Tuesday, May 11th. If you speak Greek, you know that this is the second time you've been welcomed to the podcast. That was Adonis Barkoulis, you heard at the top. He's our very own Hanna Jaffe Waltz cab driver in Greece over the last week. She isn't the only person on the team who's traveling. Adam, you and I are in Chicago. We're actually tracking from our hotel room right now. We're in town giving a speech. But you just got here from California. Yeah, I was in Newport Beach, California, home of one of the world's largest bond funds, PIMCO. It turns out Greece and Newport Beach are linked, bound together really, as players in this global financial drama that's been unfolding the last couple of weeks. Greece, as most listeners know, is at the center of this um, drama. You had to say it, didn't you? It's a Greek drama. <laughs> Greece was very close to defaulting on its bonds, which people worried could have a domino effect that maybe Portugal, Spain, Ireland would default too. All last week, the talk was of a second global financial meltdown of contagion. And then over the weekend, European financial authorities and the Fed and the IMF came up with a plan to stabilize the situation. And that plan, that's our planet money indicator, $962 billion. Let's call it an even trillion This is the amount that governments around Europe, together with the IMF, committed to help stabilize the debt crisis in Europe. Right now, it does seem like it worked at least a little bit. The financial system is better off than it was last week, but it's probably not entirely safe yet. In any event, it has been a whirlwind. And today on our podcast, we're going to be trying to answer the question, wait, what the hell just happened? And Hannah and I will be telling this tale from two very different locations. Hannah was here. That's a protest on the streets of Athens, Greece. She just got back late last night, and I was here. This is the quietest room of 200 people I've ever been in. It's a little noisier than usual right now, but... Is that really true? <laughs> so, Alex, that was the trading floor of PIMCO, getting a tour from Mark Porterfield, PR guy there. They manage over a trillion dollars. What that means, they take people's savings, pension funds, insurance company accounts, and they invest that money. They invest a lot of it in government bonds. So, like a government says, I need money to build a highway or a new weapon system for the military or to pay the doctors in my state-run hospitals. I don't have that money, so I'm going to borrow it. The way a government does that is by issuing a bond. People who buy that bond, PIMCO. Of course, not just PIMCO. PIMCO is a major buyer, but they're only one of millions of different institutions, individuals, money managers who buy government bonds. Um, PIMCO does have a trillion dollars under management. That puts them up there with a tiny, tiny handful of funds. Like they're, It's more appropriate to think of them like a government, like, like China. Um, the people who run PIMCO are considered true market leaders. What they say has a huge impact. And I went there because that really quiet, seemingly undramatic trading floor here Alex, play that again. That trading floor, that is the drama. That is where the Greek drama is happening. That is where you have to go to figure out why this is happening in Greece. We'll get back to the folks at PIMCO in a bit, but let's start the story in Greece. I'm going to hand it over to Hanna. So the Greek story begins not right now, 
with protests on the street, but a decade and a half ago. And we have some help to tell this story from a guy named Lucas Sukalis. He's a very dapper think tank man from the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy in Athens. And and Lucas says you have to start in the 1990s when the EU was talking about creating a shared currency, what we now all call the euro. So back then it was an exciting new idea. They have to figure out who is going to be allowed to join. So they all sit down. They have many meetings to lay out the criteria for countries that will be eligible. What kind of country can make it in? And Greece, it turns out, is not in any way other than being European the right kind of country. Our inflation rate was much higher than what was accepted. Our budget deficit was much higher than what was accepted. The long-term interest rates of government bonds were much higher than was accepted. So if you asked uh, somebody in Europe whether Greece would join the Eurozone, and you asked that question, let's say, in early, mid-1990s, the answer would have been, you are mad, because I mean, all Greek indicators were far off. No, no chance in your lifetime. No chance in your lifetime was not a message that made Greeks happy. Lucas Soukalos was in his 30s when this was happening. He was actually out of the country for many years. And he was, at the time, falling in love with the idea of not being Greek, but being European. So he was teaching at Oxford. He was at this university full of smart people. And he loved England and Germany. And he loved that their economies worked. And he was starting to build his identity around being a European. He made it his career. He was, you know, teaching European affairs and policy. And, and as he was doing this, he started noticing all these little ways that other Europeans sort of pushed his country to the side. Like even when they would do simple things like write all the reports that he was reading. When the European Statistical Service produced graphs of which showed all the different countries in terms of inflation rates, in terms of interest rates. Very often, Greece appeared in an insert because it couldn't fit in the graph. Right? Because if your inflation rate is 20, it doesn't fit in a normal graph. <laughs> so you either have a big graph, but it doesn't show anything, or you have a reasonable graph, and then you have inserts. But Greece, was, Greece is over here. Yeah, but Greece was not the only country, but it was one of the worst, and usually the worst. So Greece decides those rich European countries are talking about creating a common currency. This is going to completely change the face of Europe. And Lucas Soukalos decides this is his country's chance. And, and he says pretty much everyone in the Greek parliament is talking about this and thinking this is something we have to be a part of. You are going to acquire a currency that is a big international currency, which would have been unthinkable for Greeks, you know, a small country with a pretty marginalized currency. So suddenly you become part of a club of distinguished members. So there's this moment where the European Union is talking about having a joint currency, and there's no way, given Greece's economic indicators, that it would qualify, but, mm. but you decide we want in. And it was sold this way, that we have to make an effort to meet the criteria because we absolutely have to be in. And it worked. It worked. In the 1990s, and mostly just really in four years, 
Greece manages to make these major changes. It reduces its deficit to just 2% of GDP. It puts in place stronger monetary policy. It puts some, some caps on wages for all the public sector employees in Greece. And inflation falls. The deficit goes down. It's a pretty remarkable moment. So remarkable. In fact, there were some questions. But no matter, Greece made it. We became members of the solid group. The inner, because Greece was not, therefore, not only pro-European and Europhile, but it was also delivering. And then, you know, I experienced the gradual integration of Greece into the inner core, which was great, you know, great feeling. Things started to change very quickly. So right around the same time that all these negotiations are happening, a guy named Theophilus Papakostakis was called into what seemed like a very serious meeting at his job. He's a bank teller. He works at a bank called Alpha Bank in a city up north in Greece, and his manager had called the meeting. So one day after uh, work, uh, he got us together, And uh, among other things, he said that uh, you should forget what you know. Soon enough, you'll forget everything you know about banking. Everything's going to be all new. Soon, it's going to be like a supermarket. People will come in and buy all kinds of different things. Banking is not going to be only deposit, saving money. It's going to be retail. I specifically remember that expression, uh, uh, Retail banking. And when he said that, what did you think? Well, you know, we laughed. He said, yeah, sure, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. Well, it did happen. Every morning after that, Theophilus would come into work, turn on his computer, and the interest rate in the top corner of his computer for consumer loans would be lower. So it would be 18%, two days later, 15 12 6%, 4%. So Greece, basically, all of a sudden, had credit, for the first time, a lot of people didn't do consumer loans before this. And and not only credit, but way, way cheaper and easier to get credit. So Theophilus himself bought two cars. His neighbors down the street bought a vacation home. His other neighbors took out a loan to go on vacation for Christmas, and then they refinanced that loan. So really, everyone has a story like this. Like everywhere I went in Athens, my hotel has an expanded wing which has expanded in the last few years thanks to cheap credit. My cab driver. I used to own a Toyota, and uh, in 2004 I bought this, What's this Mercedes. My bar, my bar that I was at the other night, used to have just two restaurants, but I met the owner and he told me in 2002 it became not just two restaurants, but an industrial brewery, too. Well, for us, it was fantastic. 2002, when we started uh, building our industrial brewery, uh, in total we have invested about 7 million euro, which is a close to $10 million, uh, which is a big amount of money for our company. And uh, this is when we got uh, out in the banks, and the interest rates were very good, of course. We were able to borrow money at uh, 4.5%, which is uh, excellent. And the government did the same. The government took all that cheap credit and started spending. They put on an elaborate Olympic Games in 2004, and Lucas Soukalos, the think tank guy, says they returned to a favorite practice of Greek politicians addressing the unemployment problem by hiring people. In the last two years, they employed a large number of people in the, in the Greek public sector. So they added to the salary bill. 
doing what? Being like firemen and police or oh, something? Whatever. Yes. Yeah. Or you create mythical jobs. What's the craziest thing you remember hearing? I think there's, for example, an organization which was set up for the drying up of a lake. I think the lake has been dried up for the last 30 years, but the organization is still there. So there are a few employees who are paid for, you know, something that is not even remembered in history books. Everyone here on the streets, in the government, in the banks, at the bar, everyone knows that everyone spent too much money, people and the government. But people aren't quite clear on what exactly happened. I had this moment in Theophilus's house, the banker. He, he had me over for lunch, and he also had his neighbors over. This woman, Claudia Famaya, was over. And they're all sitting around, his whole family sitting around, talking about the debt crisis. And they get to this moment where they start trying to figure out where all that money actually came from. It was like the manna from heaven. <laughs> one, one day, you, uh, the interest rates are very high. The next day, it's uh, way down. So everybody thinks that uh, this is paradise. Let's go get everything. That's what happened. But, but why? But why? Why now? Like why one year do you not have any money to buy cars and vacations and homes, and then the next year you have everything you could possibly want? Maybe he knows he was working in the bank. I don't know where the money comes from. Do you know? Uh, from, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, Hannah, this is, this is where I can come in and help, because um, I, I, I actually do know who lent Greece the money. It was the folks at PIMCO in Newport Beach, uh, among others. I'm standing in the middle of, a, of that huge room. There's hundreds of people here. Each are looking at three or four. One guy has six computer screens with all sorts of numbers and spreadsheets on them. I'm getting a tour from Lupin Raman. Um, this is a room, remember, that is so quiet. And by the way, we're surrounded by several hundred people, although it's so, so quiet. It is extremely quiet, and that's part of the, the PIMCO culture on the trade floor. And um, we're kind of whispering here. <laughs> Why are we whispering? We're not whispering. We're just keeping our voices low because everyone's focused on their, on their tasks. And There's basically one task at this place, and it is to figure out which of the bonds in the world we should buy and which of the bonds in the world we should sell. And remember, buying a bond, that is the same as lending someone money. You buy a bond for a million dollars, but that means is that the person you buy the bond from, they're going to promise to pay you back in full with interest over some period of time. And so figuring out which of the world's bonds to buy is essentially the same as saying, who in the world are we going to loan money to? And back when Greece adopted the euro as its currency in 2001, PIMCO lent the money. They bought their bonds. PIMCO, of course, wasn't the only one doing this. So did lots of banks and bond funds and other governments, lots of players. The world financial markets, you know, at large, uh, you know, lent the money. That's Scott Mather. He's the head of global markets at PIMCO. He explains that before Greece joined the euro, they were one of the poorest countries in Europe. They were still part of the developed world. They were considered rich countries, but they were nowhere near as rich as Germany or the UK or Sweden. And they had a lousy history of really bad economic management. So Scott and everyone else would not lend Greece money. They would not buy their bonds unless Greece paid a very high interest rate. Then Greece got the euro. And now Scott and all the other people like him figured they're a safer bet. He would lend the money at much lower rates. After all, he thought, and this week he was proven right, the bigger economies, the richer countries in the Eurozone would step in and help if there was a problem. 
So even if Greece does screw up, richer countries like Germany and France and England will be there with their deeper pockets to help them, you know, to help bail them out. And to join the euro, Greece made all these promises. We're going to cut our spending. We're going to raise more taxes. We're going to lower our public sector payroll. We're going to manage our economy better. The markets initially uh, give countries like Greece a tremendous benefit of the doubt. Uh, and that they, they expect that sovereigns will follow through on at least some portion of their promises. Uh, and the market was basically giving Greece a benefit of, of, of the doubt uh, because they were a Eurozone member, part of the club, for uh, you know, the better part of a decade. What happens is in 2009, we have an election in October. Okay, now we're back in Greece. We're hopscotching around. This is Lucas Soukalos again, and he's talking about one of the big turning points uh, in this whole story. So Greece had been getting people like PIMCO to lend them money at pretty low rates. But then at the end of last year, the new government, the socialists, came to power and they made a disturbing discovery. The previous government was claiming that the deficit of that year was running at something like 6%. The socialists come to power and they announce a few days later what they have discovered is that the deficit is actually close to 13% and not 6 and then so, the, so double what everybody yeah. had thought it was. Well, what they had claimed, but everybody, I think, who knew more or less the Greek situation, including the European Commission, knew that it was approaching 10. But it was not public. Was through, like, accounting tricks or literally, like, hiding the document? No, it was more, well, some accounting tricks. Plus, I can give you examples and say if a hospital has accumulated debts, hasn't paid them, and you pretend that this debt is not part of your normal debt procedure. You leave it aside. So you don't put it in the balance sheet. So somebody in the new government is coming in and saying, oh, wait, there's hospital debt. We have to add that. There's this military yeah, yeah. debt. So I'm sure some members of the statistical office also went and told them. Greece uh, has continuously over the past decade, even from the start of their Eurozone entry, promised things that then they didn't deliver. All right, we're back in Newport Beach, again, Scott Mather. And from Scott's perspective, as someone who spends every day of his life determining down to the tiniest fraction of a percentage point just how likely it is that a country he lends money to will pay him back, this revelation was the final straw. Ever since Greece got the euro 10 years ago, there have been worrying signs. They'd slipped a little in their commitments to a balanced budget. Deficits were rising. So, uh, you know, and, and of course, that was more painfully obvious uh, even in this last year where where they've said, well, uh, the deficit is X. Oh, actually, it's twice that. That led the bond guys at PIMCO to take action, bond action. At the end of last year, we sold all our Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish exposure. This is Mohamed El Arian. He's the CEO of PIMCO. I think it's safe to say that like every finance minister in every country in the world is thinking about Mohamed El Arian pretty often because what El Arian says has a huge influence on the world. And countries will routinely approach PIMCO trying to get them to buy their bonds. In other words, trying to get PIMCO to lend them money. So after El Arian sold all its Greek bonds, the Greek government issued a new round of bonds and they came to PIMCO to see if they would like to buy some. The Greek government came with lots of offerings. Did they come to you directly? They did come to us directly via our offices in, in Germany and London, and we said, thank you, but no thank you. What did they ask? What did they say? They said, we are issuing five, seven, seven billion. Lots of people are participating. Look at 
how attractive these bonds are. And we said, you mean the interest rates are higher than the rest of Europe? The interest rates are higher not only than the rest of Europe, but they were higher than what they were before. And we said, thank you very much. We appreciate it. But our analysis shows that sovereign risk is an issue. Sovereign risk. That's bond speak for we're worried that we'll lend this government money and they won't be able to pay us back. And this is a key moment. It's like a guy who's maxed out a bunch of credit cards. Fewer and fewer people want to lend that guy money. And the ones who will lend him the money will only do it at a really high rate. That's basically the situation Greece has been in for months. Until exactly what El Arian was afraid would happen almost happened. Greece came very close to not being able to pay money it owed bondholders. Greece and every country, actually, is constantly rolling over their debt. They pay back old bonds by issuing new bonds. They pay off their old credit card debt, basically, by borrowing some more money on their credit cards. But then, all of a sudden, nobody would lend Greece the money to pay off that old debt. More and more investors noticed that Greece owed 120% of its GDP. That is way too much for Greece to be able to pay back without something changing. And that's where we are today. The other countries of Europe said, okay, if nobody else will loan you the money, we'll loan it to you, but you've got to make changes. You can't keep paying all those public sector employees all that money. You have to cut some of those salaries. Now, of course, when you lower people's salaries, when you cut their jobs, they don't like it. And as you can hear from this protest, the people in Greece are angry about it. They're angry at the government. They're angry at the Europeans. They seem to be angry at anybody who is angry at them. And a lot of them are angry at the international financial system in general. It seems like the system is arbitrarily punishing Greece, demanding that Greece lay off all its public sector employees, raise taxes, and for what? So it seemed to us like the two sides should talk. And so sitting in Scott's office in Newport Beach, we got the two sides on the phone. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Adam. Hey. Hey, Scott, do you want to pick up the phone? Sure. Hello? Hey, Scott, this is Hannah. I'm calling you from Athens right under the Acropolis. Oh, exciting. Probably a good place to be. I have a woman here who is an archaeologist with the Ministry of Culture, and she's asking me lots of questions about how a banker in America can can affect her life, and I thought she should just ask you directly. Uh, Well, sure, happy to help. So the archaeologist that Hannah met at the protest, her name is Despina. She makes around 1,600 euros a month. She has a five-year-old daughter. Her husband is also in the public sector. He's a philosophy professor at a state university. An archaeologist and a philosophy professor together, that is a pretty Greek couple. And Despina asked Scott a very understandable question about all this. This global crisis didn't, uh, uh, didn't start from my salary or from my needs. It started from CDS, spreads, loans... And uh, and uh, hedge funds, hedge funds, and bankers, banks that uh, collapsed, and uh, I wasn't responsible for any of this. Why should I pay for something I wasn't responsible for? And plus, why should I pay for something that from from something that I didn't earn anything? Other other made profits. Other people made profits from all these uh, I don't know products of the stock market. I've never played my money to the stock market. I've never have had so many economists to play it in the stock market. I did. I never even liked all of these things, stock markets, etc. Why should I reduce my salary so that those who made profits all this year uh, uh, continue to make profits? 
Well, why don't don't why can't they pay? Right. Well, let's for this crisis. Well, let's um let's not forget what really started the crisis. What the problem is is not uh, that stock markets have gone down. The problem is that some some countries uh, and some people in those countries have continually borrowed more. Uh, than they've paid off, and they've built up huge, huge amounts of debts, and that's certainly true, true in Greece. So while not true of you as an individual, the average Greek citizen has spent much more, and, and the government has spent much more than they've collected uh, for years and years and years. And so to some extent, um, uh, you know, the average Greek citizen has been borrowing from the rest of the world uh, for over a decade. And it's now reached such a high level of debt that it can no longer be financed uh, in that manner. So uh, it's, it's, it's you know, certainly not one person, it's not one uh, political group, and it's certainly not the financial markets that have created this crisis. The problem is too many people are relying on borrowing uh, and spending rather than uh, a more balanced uh, economic life. This conversation, I don't think Despina was convinced, and of course – you can understand why she wouldn't be. Here she's been living her life and she hears about some crisis in America and something banks did. And then all of a sudden Germany and the IMF are telling her government that they need to give her a 25% pay cut. And she and Scott actually agreed a lot in their conversation. She, she said to him, why are they going after me? Why not, after, why not cut Greece's military budget, which is huge? Scott agreed. Uh, she also said, what about all the millionaires in Greece who don't pay their taxes? Greece has a huge problem with that. Scott agreed. She also said, why not cut down on some of that government waste? Again, Scott agreed. But Scott's point is, don't look at the rest of the world to blame. Look at your own government. The main number he looks at, 120% debt to GDP. That is just too big. What that means is Greece has been living beyond its means, spending more than it earns, avoiding doing the hard stuff going after the millionaire tax cheats, laying off unnecessary public sector employees, not spending huge amounts of money every election season on unneeded public projects. Greece has to produce more and spend less. The Greek government simply can't afford to pay Despina what she's been making. In fact, it probably could not afford it at any point in the last 10 years. And they're just facing up to that fact now. I asked Scott if there is any way around a tough period for Greece, a tough period for Despina. Are they all just screwed? He said, yeah, and they're not the only ones. I mean, most of the developed world is screwed. Okay. That means that countries are... Developed, meaning rich countries, meaning Europe, U.S., Japan. And that makes this crisis particularly uh, different than anything we've seen in our lifetimes. Um, There's nothing quite like it. The countries that aren't screwed are the emerging market countries. They have very low levels of debt, uh, both public and private sector. So so they're not impacted to the same extent. It's been a complete flip-flop. The developed world now is where... The rich world was, you know, 30 years ago. So, yeah, I mean, historically, the U.S., U.K., we would lend money to the rest of the world. They'd owe us money. We'd be rich. (laughs) They'd be in debt. Yeah, the world has been turned uh, on its head. So now the emerging market world is lending money uh, to the the rich world. So the rich world uh, has has continued to spend more uh, than they've made for for decades. So I I think of – in college, I was one of those idiots who applied for every credit card they offered me. And I remember I had five credit cards. And I, like, last year of college, first year after college, I had a really nice life. I was going out to eat at fancy restaurants. I bought a nice TV. I remember there was this bicycle I wanted that was more expensive, but I got it. And it was awesome. And then 23, 24, 25, I started realizing I owe way more money than I can afford. I took a job I didn't want. I 
lived much more frugally. And and I guess that's basically what, what Greece is going through. That they think the problem started today, but really the problem started ten years ago when they started when they got that Euro credit card. No, that's right. Maybe you should go to Greece and uh, and hand out some pamphlets on what needs to happen. But um you know, I, I it, it's still, uh, to us, the, the most startling thing is this disconnect, where people think there is some easier way out. There is no easy way out. And uh, and what we're talking about here is an adjustment that's going to happen not just in Greece, around the rest of the Europe. It's going to have to happen in the U.K. Uh, it's going to have to happen in the U.S. as well. And uh, people at some point have to develop a better connection with what government spending means for them personally. Uh, we, we've had seems like you know better part of a couple of decades where people have lost that connection. It's viewed as just uh, manna from heaven, and it's an entitlement, uh, something that you know everyone has deserved that has no impact or shouldn't have an impact ever on them. They should be able to borrow unlimited amounts, get unlimited amounts of government services and benefits with no repercussions. Uh, it's not all free money. Uh, the money has to be paid back. Mohamed El Arian, and, and I should say lots of other people, say the solution to Greece's problems is as simple as it is for anyone who has way too much debt, who can't pay back what they owe. Let them default. Let them declare bankruptcy. Bondholders, people who still own Greek bonds, won't get paid back all the money they lent. But that's a good lesson for them. They shouldn't have lent money to a country in way too much debt. A default is certainly tough. Greece won't be able to borrow at reasonable rates for a while. They'll have to cut spending a lot. It's going to be a tough time. They'll be a financial pariah for several years. But then if they do do the hard stuff, they can emerge healthier a few years from now. El Arian says that this is inevitable. It's almost certainly going to happen. And the longer Greece puts it off, the worse it's going to be for everyone. On Sunday, the European Union announced their big plan to help Greece. At its core, they are lending Greece a whole lot more money at very favorable rates. In other words, according to El Arian, Europe is just kicking the can down the road a bit. Europe is helping Greece avoid its problems, at least for now. I think that does it for us today, Adam. Send us your thoughts, questions, etc. to planetmoney at npr.org or check us out on the blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Tidy.